turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the word to stand on for life. And did I say it's already April, April 1st today? We have a busy weekend going on here at the church, Communion Sunday this weekend, and I know it's the same for many of you out there. It's an opportunity for all of us to go and partake at the Lord's table. It is such an honor to do that. Uh, tonight I'm going to be teaching about, um, well, the greatest moment in the history of the world. And that's when Jesus returns to this earth to set things right. So that's tonight in Revelation chapter 19. Now we're here today to take your phone calls and answer Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is call us. You can call uh, your questions by dialing 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions at calvarysa.com, and we got a lot of them in uh, late yesterday and today, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands free. Let's start with some questions while we await your phone calls. The first question comes from our email inbox, and this one is from Rachel. She says, I've been married for seven years, and there was a lot of issues within our marriage. I asked God one day that if it wasn't meant for me to make it to where I can't stay, and a few days later, um, that, that that's exactly what happened. We've been separated for about a year, and he's changed, and I've changed, and we want to make it work. In your opinion, would I upset God if we tried to work on our marriage? Rachel, not at all. God God is always, his first choice is always reconciliation. But let me say, before we go into that, um, let me say that, that God, you know, when, when we say things, God, if, if you don't want me to do this, um, make it impossible. If you want me to do this, push me through the door. God doesn't work like that. Uh, we have his word, Rachel, and you're calling a radio program that really is all about his word. And so you should know that, that you don't throw out those metaphorical fleeces before the Lord. Um, you do what the Bible says to do. And then God will direct your steps. You make sure your heart is right and God will direct your steps. So um, when you say, uh, God, if you're not meant for me to, to make it to this marriage, uh, to, to stay in this marriage, then just make it impossible. Uh, the, the, the enemy's always in something like that, and he's going to try to do something or cause something uh, to end the marriage because he doesn't want godly marriages. So I don't know anything else, Rachel. You've given me almost no information, but I can say this. God would be pleased for you to reconcile. 
Um, far be it for him to be upset. He would be pleased, forgiving, and, and starting over. And that's what you promised him when you got married. Uh, you promised him that you would stay married. Probably your, your, the officiating pastor said something like, until death do you part. And the problems that you had, the issues that you had, like all issues in marriages, are just flesh and selfishness. And and so, um, again, assuming that there's um, uh, no physical abuse going on, um, that, that uh, you and he uh, have both changed and, and you're back to this place, now is the time for you and your husband or ex-husband, I you don't make it even clear if you've divorced him yet, um, this is for you to get counseling and start all over again. But uh, go to your pastor, get some counseling, and um, let the Lord put his hand on you. I, I promise you he will do just that. And uh, this time you'll be building on a solid foundation of repentance, of forgiveness, and a, and a willingness to honor God with a new start. So, Rachel... God bless you. I hope and pray it works out. Uh, I, I hope you keep me and our listeners informed. Um, but but go to your pastor, you and your husband or ex-husband. Go to your pastor and um, get into some marriage counseling before you make the connection back to one another. But believe me, it is always God's first choice to reconcile. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Dale from our mobile app. He says, Pastor Ron, please explain the second half of Isaiah 43.3, where God states that I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba, in your stead. Let me read that uh, out of the 84. Um, um, And and this is a, a wonderful psalm of promise by Isaiah. He's saying, um, this is what the Lord says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And th- that distinction between Jacob and Israel is important because Jacob, of course, was was the con man. Uh, he's one of the patriarchs of, of Israel, of course. But his name Jacob means conniver or con man. And, and uh, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, uh, he created Jacob the con man, but he also created Israel. Now, Israel means governed by God. And so he says, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm behind all of this. And I will protect you. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You used to be Jacob, but I have remade you as Israel, governed by God. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. And listen to this promise. This is verse 2 in Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And what he's saying there is simply this. I've got you. I'm going to protect you. No matter what you're going through. And we know Jacob went through an awful lot. I mean, all of the pain. You talk about going through fires and trials, waters or rivers that are about to sweep over him. He was told his son Joseph was dead. And he refused to be comforted. But God kept his promise, didn't he? God kept his promise. I've got you. I'll be there. And I'll be with you. And then the verse you asked about, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba, in your stead. Um, What he's saying is the whole world is given for you. Obviously, this is a reference to Israel, the, the, the nation who uh, will later be delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God says, I'm going to overwhelm Egypt, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And I'm doing that, Israel, for you. And when he talks about Cush and Seba, he's just simply talking about a judgment will go to them instead of you. And we know, of course, he sent his son to die for us. And uh, Israel is redeemed by those means. So, uh, Dale, thank you very, very much. I hope that answers your question. Isaiah 43. I've got that, by the way. I taught Isaiah 43 here at uh, church. And um, if, if you uh, are interested, you can go to our website. Everything we have there is free. You can you can listen to it. And I think my notes uh, on the study are available there as well. Thanks, Dale. Appreciate the question.
Here is a question from our email inbox. This one from Matthew. He says, Hi, Pastor Ron. I've been diving deep into Isaiah. Good for you, Matthew. Uh, I've read it before, but this time around, some of the words that are jumping out of the pages are words like consequences and warnings and promises. Am I on the right track? Can you please add your wisdom to what Isaiah is about personally? What and how can I apply the book of Isaiah to my walk with Jesus? You know, Matthew, Isaiah is is um, difficult uh, to to really get hold of. I mean, it takes a lot of study. Not not like Ezekiel or Zechariah are difficult. They're difficult because of the imagery uh, is very very uh, complicated. But but Isaiah is difficult because he jumps around. Uh, in one verse, he can be talking about something in the present time, and then he'll immediately jump to the end of time, and then he'll come back some to some places in between. And so it just just takes a lot of study. Uh, it is well worth your time to dig in. Now, the thing that thrills me about your question, Matthew, is that uh, although you have read it before, this time God is meeting you where you are. Now, his word is living and active. We're told that uh, in the New Testament. And so uh, his living and active word is growing with you. And he's emphasizing different things. You could read Isaiah a hundred times. And each of those times, the living, active word of God would, would be emphasizing something else. Now, the meaning has never changed. But he would be emphasizing different things as you read because you're at a different place in your walk. And so what he's saying with you, words like consequences and warnings, I always say to our church here, Matthew, that God never warns us about something unless we need to be warned about it. So perhaps he's, he's showing you some things that you need to be aware of, uh, some, some, maybe some things that you need to steer clear of. Um, but he's really, I think, just talking about his righteousness. When you sin, there will be consequences. And, and his warnings are loving um, they're corrective warnings. Don't go here. Instead, go here. And then the result, when he's highlighting the promises, he's saying, this is what awaits you. And Matthew, these are wonderful, wonderful um, times with the Lord where he's meeting you because you're in a different place. The same word that you've read in the past also becomes bigger. And you could read it, as I said, a hundred times, and the Lord would meet you a hundred different times, uh, depending on where you are in your walk with the Lord. So Isaiah is, you know, Isaiah is is sort of a mini Bible. Uh, it is one of the most New Testament focused prophecies in our Old Testament, and Jesus is everywhere in the Book of Isaiah. So uh, just read. Let him let him keep speaking to your heart. Sounds like you've got uh, the right idea here. And uh, just remember Isaiah, arguably Matthew, one of the two holiest men in all of Scripture. Daniel and Isaiah usually uh, are what Bible scholars uh, conclude they're they're the two most righteous men. Um, not perfect. They're sinners. They're 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 humans, but. They serve as example to us of what walking in holiness produces. And God will use you just as he used Daniel and just as he used Isaiah as you pursue walking in holiness with the Lord. He'll use you to do things that, that you can't possibly imagine. By the way, Isaiah uh, became martyred for his faith. He was... Um, Jewish tradition has that he was um, uh, put into a hollowed out log and sawn in half. That's how he lost his life. Old Testament prophets uh, often paid uh, for their faithfulness with their lives. That's one of the things I always think about when people declare themselves prophets today. I don't know that they want a real life of a prophet because it was difficult. Uh, but Isaiah will, uh, you, you you just read through Isaiah. The judgments that are in there, they, they, at times they get a little tedious. The, uh, the uh, warnings to the surrounding nations. But when God's talking about his people, the glorious promises of his son and the changes in this world 
are glorious. Just wonderful, wonderful promises. So, Matthew, thank you. I'm glad you're reading it again and again. Here is our next question. This one comes from Rick. He says, Hi, Pastor Ron. I heard about Jesus being at the right hand of God. What does that mean? I'm not familiar with the Bible as much, but I'm picturing God to be sitting on a huge throne, Jesus on his right hand, standing next to him, and the Holy Spirit on his left hand, kind of dangling in the air. Am I, uh, is my understanding of this correct? I heard about the Trinity, and I believe in that. However, is there three different gods? Let me deal with the second part of this, um, Rick, uh, because it's the most important part. The Trinity is not, and, and this is where you have to get away from seeing a picture of the Father and then Jesus on one side, the Holy Spirit on the other side. It's one God. One God, but he's manifest to the world in three persons. Obviously, the Father was first. Um, in the beginning, God. That's a reference to the Father and the work that was in the Father's heart, uh, the work that he gave Jesus and the Holy Spirit to do. Um, but uh, it's one God manifest in three persons. Now, what's really important to understand is what their focus is. The Father, who is God Almighty, John's Gospel says that God is, that Jesus is speaking. He says, God the Father is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, for humans like us, Rick, it's really difficult to imagine a spirit. We have no way of identifying with a spirit. I remember when I was a brand new believer and I was really trying to get my hands and my head around this idea of, of God the Father. And I could never picture him. I would picture him as a, as a, as like a greenish mist out in heaven somewhere. Uh, I mean, what, what is a spirit and how can we imagine? Well, we can't imagine. So that's why he sent his son, Jesus. He became a human being. He was 100% God. But he was also 100% human, and he sent his son in the form of a human because that's the only way we could identify with God. Jesus said, I've come to show you the Father. He's the exact representation, the exact image of the Father. In other words, if you could put flesh and blood on that spirit that is the Father, then uh, we would uh, we we would see Jesus. He's the if, if God the Father looked in a mirror and we could see the reflection, what we would see is Jesus. So Jesus came to reveal not only the person of the Father but the holy character of the Father. Now, when Jesus died and was ascended into the heavens. He sent the Holy Spirit, that's God's active ministry on this earth now, is in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job is to testify about Jesus. So you've got one God, but you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. And people say, well, one plus one plus one is three. Yeah, but one times one times one is what? It's one. And so that's, I think, the best way to grasp this, Rick. Um, the, 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 the Father is completely God, the Son is completely God, and the Spirit is completely God. There's no division, there's no competition uh, amongst them. They are in perfect unity and have been forever and will be forever. So that's the thing. Now, about Jesus being on the right hand of God. Obviously, the Father, I just said, he was a spirit, so he doesn't have a hand. So that's clearly a figurative language or symbolic language. And what he means by Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, the right hand uh, in Jewish thought meant the hand of power. Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me by my Father. He is the authority or the power of God. And so when it said he's seated at the right hand of God now, ever lives to make intercession for us in Hebrews chapter 7, what it means is he's in the seat of power. And that's why we make all of our prayers through him. That's why we approach him. Those are the really, really important things. Rick, good question. I love your curiosity. Um, when you say your your. Now, I'm familiar with the Bible. Now, this is where, as a new believer, Rick, 
This is where you begin digging in and devouring the word. Good for you. You will be excited. 09585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, this is a question from our email inbox, actually more of a, a, um, um, a statement uh, from Shannon. Uh, hi, Pastor On. I'm a long time. And Ruben, listen closely. I'm a long time listener and asked a question on uh, a question or two. I listen on Spotify. I've never been told I'm even on Spotify. Good, good for me. <laughs> Please tell Ruben and Seguin that he is not alone. I've been praying for him through all his difficulties, his pain, COVID, and struggles. He has a great spirit, and he's a friend in far northern Wisconsin. Um, uh, and then she says, God bless you, uh, you, Paula, and Reuben. So, Reuben, you've got fans. This is wonderful. Shannon, that's really, really nice. I love uh, have, knowing that people are listening in um, uh, in Wisconsin, uh, pass it along. Uh, that that's really really great. And you're right about Reuben's heart. He has a great spirit, and uh, I know Reuben well enough. And I've never met him, but I know Reuben well enough. He's been on the show so many times. I know Reuben well enough to know that this was a thrill for his heart and a source of encouragement. Shannon, God bless you. I appreciate your listening all the way from Wisconsin. We're inside five minutes. Let's see, do I have time for this? I think I do. Here's an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, pastor Ron, how should a church choose their pastors? My church is about to ordain a pastor, and I believe he's a little bit too young to be a pastor. I understand that my beliefs can stem from the legalistic church that I used to attend. At my old church, they stated that a pastor cannot be ordained until the age of 30, like the start of a high priestly ministry. Does your church ordain people under 30 to be pastors, and is it biblical? I pray my question makes sense because I want to be in the will of the Lord and understand how a church should run in accordance with his word. Anonymous, this is a wonderful question, and I may, uh, I'll close this, this half with it. I may have to bleed over to the other side a little bit. Uh, let me deal with the, the, the um, issue of youth first. Um, being young does not disqualify somebody from being a pastor uh, by itself. Um, I have known some very mature uh, mid-20s to early 30s young men. Um, uh, so, so that's not the disqualification. What's far more important, uh, Paul says to Timothy, that we're not to lay hands on, and that's in the sense of ordaining on somebody too quickly. Now, I do have two pastors. They're both my youth pastors. One is junior high school and one is high school. And they are both young men, 25-ish, uh, both of them. And uh, here's the thing. I've known them since they were one of them. I've known him literally his whole life before he was born. And the other one, uh, most of his life. And so I've watched these young men grow. I've been able to see the work of God uh, in their lives. And I have absolutely no problem um, ordaining them and trusting them. They've been raised to think like me. And that's a good thing. We want unity in the church. Now, uh, I would not, now as much as I love and admire both of those young men, I would not today make either one of them a senior pastor in a church. Um, I, I just think it is a, a very uh, dangerous place for young men to be. There is life experience and maturity and growth uh, that needs to occur before someone is given the opportunity to be a senior pastor. Having said that, uh, I have ordained people in their early 30s and sent them out to plant churches. Uh, I have been... Uh, sorry, I did it a couple of times, but more often than not, uh, I knew who they were and I knew they would do a great job and they've done it. One of the things that young men have a trouble with is is um, hanging in there, not quitting when things get hard. So I think a church needs to be very, very careful. I also think a church uh, should select their pastor based on what they see in that pastor's life. Uh, when theoretically, when I ordain a pastor 
uh, I'd be able to bring him up and everybody should be able to say, oh, well, that's obvious that he's going to be ordained a pastor because we've watched him doing the work. So uh, you've got to be really, really careful. Pray for your church. Pray for those who selected the pastor and pray for the young pastor. And if there's any tinge of bad teaching that is causing you to uh, to hold on to that legalistic background that you spoke about, um, um, be careful. Uh, but yes, churches can ordain younger people uh, under the age of 30, but again, they would have to be somebody who is extraordinarily mature for their age, somebody who's been tested and proven. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, It is required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. And typically young men haven't had the opportunity to prove themselves. And one of the bad things about churches in these um, days where everybody's trying to get younger and younger is um, we're just not patient enough to let people pass the test. So I hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Ron Arbaugh. I'm privileged to be the pastor of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our friday show 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR i want to go uh, my producer god bless him reminded me of a promise we made yesterday. Robert called very early in the program yesterday and asked about the Hebrew term Azazel. In Leviticus chapter 16, it's a passage that deals with the scapegoats, or, or, or more literally translated scapegoat. Um, and um, Robert wanted to know what Azazel or who Azazel was. Now, this is going to be complicated um, and I'll just start out by saying nobody knows for sure. There are a lot of theories as to um, the nature of the lots that were cast uh, to choose between the goats. There are some who believe that one lot had the name of the Lord, or the YHVH, and the other the name of Azazel. Um, and again, that's a literal Hebrew word that's translated scapegoat. Um, one theory... Uh, commentator named Rooker, Rooker says, according uh, to Gerstenberger, that's the source he had, a yes stone and a no stone were placed in a container. The one that fell out first would provide the answer to the posed question. The scapegoat was literally, as I said earlier, an scapegoat. It escaped death and went into the wilderness. Scapegoat translates the Hebrew word Azazel, the meaning of this word is far from certain. The word may perhaps signify removal or dismissal. Probably the best explanation is that the word was a rare technical term describing complete removal. And that's a theologian named Harrison. Um, Here is... Uh, another three possible interpretations for the meaning of this term. First, it may mean the goat that departs. Uh, second, it may refer to the place where the animal is dispatched or killed uh, or the precipice. And third, it may be considered the proper name of the demon inhabiting the uh, the desert where the goat is released. And that is Azazel. And that's uh, a, a scholar named Peter Contessa. So uh, I read those because nobody really knows. You could find 10 other uh, commentators and get different um, results or different opinions. I think, Robert, the idea is it was a picture of how some will escape the consequences of their sin. 
uh, the sins will depart from them, while others will pay the price for their sins. And of course, we know that the basis of that is what we've done with Jesus Christ. So um, Leviticus is very technical. Uh, Sometimes the Hebrew words are very difficult to translate. And this is one of those cases where we've got to be okay, Robert, with saying, you know, I just don't know for sure. But um, uh, personally, I favor the idea that it is simply is the name that was attached in the ceremony to the goat that was allowed to run away and escape with its life. Picture, of course, of Jesus bearing our sins. The goat that was killed, remember the priests would put their hands on the head of the goat, and it was sort of a symbolic transfer of the sins. Well, that's a picture, of course, of pointing to Jesus. So I hope that helps, Robert, and sorry it took me this long to to get to it today. Here is a question. Oops, I think I just did that one. Yes. Yep, did that one. That's the pastors and how to ordain them. So let me go to my next question. It is from Angela. She says, do we have to be saved to get saved? <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but that's what I was told at church. Angela, this is, I'm sad. I'm sad because somebody would say that, you know, you're not saved. You can't save yourself. You can't make a choice to get saved. And this is, the source of this is Reformed Theology where a Reformed theologist or theologian or a a Calvinist would say to you, um, you know, we're dead, walking around, we have no capacity to choose God, there's nothing good in us, we're so totally depraved that we can't make the right choice. And so the the Calvinist would say, um, you can't do anything to get saved, God actually saves you, and then your eyes are opened to uh, your need for Jesus Christ because you were chosen by God. So, Angela, what I would say to you, especially it, it appears you're a fairly new believer, what I would say is find a church that's not, not Reformed. Find a church that isn't Calvinist. The idea that we have to be saved to get saved sort of takes the choice away from human beings, and that's a choice that, guard, that God guards zealously uh, because we have to make the choice. And the, 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 the idea that we can't get saved until we are saved makes absolutely no sense to anyone, and that's why um, you're not sure what it means. That's why the Spirit of God is is sort of telling you, no, you need to check this out. We are saved, Angela, when the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. Throughout the New Testament, there is the Greek word para, P-A-R-A, and it means he walks alongside. In fact, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the comforter or the counselor. And that Greek word is parakletos. And it means he comes alongside us. And when he does, according to Jesus now, this isn't Pastor Ron, this is Jesus. Jesus says when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Now here's what he does. Um... You're starting to open your eyes or your eyes are starting to be open to things spiritual. Your conscience begins to bother you. You've got a sense that you're doing things that you know are wrong. Now, there may be things, as it was in my case, that I was doing for many, many years and never did my conscience bother me. But when the Holy Spirit comes alongside, he gives us a little bit different perspective. And suddenly I was doing things and I knew that I shouldn't be doing those things. And I actually felt guilty about doing it. That's the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. Then it says of righteousness, we know we need to be right with God, but we don't know how to do it. So we understand that, that, that our sin is separating us from God. And if we don't respond to this work of the Holy Spirit, then what awaits us is judgment. And when we start dealing with those three things, we have to come to the conclusion that that uh, I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God. And then we cry out to God for help. That's how we get saved. But Angela, make no mistake, we have to do that of our own free will. We have to make that choice. And to 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 think that God gives us no choice, he calls some, and we can't resist his will, uh, flies in the face of, of what the Bible says. Teaches. I almost said clearly teaches, but it wouldn't be uh, so clear because there are so many people get trapped into these human logical explanations about how these things happen. So, Angela, just you give your life to Jesus Christ. Admit you're a sinner. 
Tell him that you're powerless against sin and you need his help. Tell him you believe that he is the Son of God and God the Son. And then because he died and because he didn't stay dead, your sins were paid for by Jesus. And then you say, Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you. And you are then saved, a believer, born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Angela, I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Amanda. She says, how do you respond to people who say there's a lot of discussion and disagreement regarding your position? She means my position, Pastor Ron's position, on women pastors. I think saying they shouldn't be based on a verse or two is not an honest approach. And, and, and Amanda, I hope I'm reading this right. Uh, when when people um, who are supportive of women being pastors say, well, there's only a, a couple of verses, um, um, so... so uh, I would agree with you. When when they do that, that's not only dishonest scholarship, but it's terrible hermeneutics. And by that, hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. So um, I know there's a lot of people who say who there's disagreement regarding uh, what I believe. Now, it's not my position. It's the Apostle Paul's position writing under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The context mitigates against this. Now, most of the time, and let me let me backtrack just a step, Amanda. Most of the time when people who say, well, women should be pastors too, and that was just for then, they almost always refer to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 um, when, when uh, uh, Paul says, I do not per- permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And they come to the conclusion that Paul was a sexist. And that Paul just, he was a single celibate male and he was sour on women. And uh, surely women could, well, they're taking that completely out of context. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and it wasn't a one once for all instruction. This was very specifically dealing with an out of control situation in the churches in Corinth. The women were rebelling women were flaunting their freedom uh, they, they they rather than than use their freedom to get closer to Jesus they were flaunting their freedom to rebel against their husbands and there were actually out of order situations in Corinth where the men and the women would be arguing with one another yelling over one another in the church assembly and Paul saying that's out of control so 1 Corinthians deals with a, a very specific issue in those churches and it gives us instruction but but it's not dealing with the idea of women pastors at all we know that there were women prophetesses in the new testament church Um, women are encouraged to pray so it's not that women can't speak in church that's not what paul was trying to accomplish he's just trying to get the church at corinth to conduct themselves in an orderly way so that's the wrong idea. It is completely different in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 12, Paul, the context there is order in the New Testament church. And he's saying, Timothy, now remember, Paul is getting ready to die. He knows it. And the things that he's saying to Timothy are things, Timothy, you're going to take over for me. And as you take over, these are the, the things that I want you to stay focused, where Paul says, preach the word, be prepared in the season and out of season. Um, uh, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Use your authority as a godly servant uh, over the churches. And in this particular case, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. Period. And then he goes all the way back to Genesis to provide a foundation for that teaching. And hermeneutically, uh, whenever you see Genesis used uh, as a foundation for a doctrinal or, or positional statement Paul makes, then it is something that is intended for the church for all time. So while Corinth was cultural, specific to that church, his instructions to Timothy were not. This is, these are the rules I lay down in all the churches, he says. And so, I mean, the, the reason there's a lot of discussion and the reason their approach is dishonest is because they simply don't want to do what God says to do. 
It's a simple position biblically is is this. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, um, it's his church. Um, he's in the middle of the churches. Um, if it's his church and we are, Christians are his servants, then we take orders. We don't change orders. We don't give opinions. We simply say, Lord, this is your house. And in your house, you make the rules. And my job is to follow those rules. And the people, as I said, who who say, well, well, that's just one or two verses. Um, they have no idea how to study their Bibles. And they have been won over by the culture that we live in. And as Christians, we have to agree with our Christ. If we don't, then how can we possibly call ourselves Christians? And that's really what's going on. And you'll see this spreading like wildfire, Amanda, on, on, uh, on the Internet, uh, blogs that are run by women, which are fine. God didn't say women can't have Christian blogs. But, but they're dishonoring God with the use of their blogs. The two terms are complementarianism or egalitarianism. And uh, one means that the woman is a complement to the man, uh, the, her husband in particular, and uh, the other is, is a position that says, no, women have all the rights and all the, the entitlements to positions uh, that, that any man has without um, restriction. And um, there's no honest way to come to that conclusion. It would be much easier to talk with these people if, in fact, they would simply say, look, this is the, the 21st century, and I don't care what God says. Women and men are equal, and I demand that uh, that uh, they be given the exact same opportunities. That's simply not biblical at all. So the question, Amanda, is who's in charge, God or our culture? And I think the Holy Spirit is sort of speaking to your heart about this, because you just know there's something wrong with that approach. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Friday, it's a quiet day on the phones today. Rodney asks, uh, I think baptism is required for salvation because Jesus said we must be born of water and spirit. Do you agree? Rodney, I could not disagree with you more. God bless you, but you're wrong. You know, the, the idea that Jesus is saying we must be born of water and spirit, and the water means baptism, is, is impossible when you realize that in the very next verse, Jesus defines what being born of water and spirit means. He says in the very next verse, you must be born of water, that's the natural birth, in other words, you've got to be a human being to be saved, and we are. But you also have to be born again by the Spirit, and that's exactly the context of his conversation with Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, the most religious man in Israel, the teacher, the teacher of Israel, he says, uh, you of all people shouldn't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So what are the qualifications to be a Christian? The qualifications are simple. You've got to be a human being, born in the natural way, and then reborn or born again by the power of the Spirit. And that's what the baptism is a symbol of. We, we go down in the water, um, symbolic of the death of the old you, and then when we bring the person back up out of the water, that's symbolic of the born-again life that begins on the day of salvation. So um, it has nothing to do with water um, for baptism at all, Rodney. This is all and only about you got to be a human and you got to be born again. And that's what he says twice you must be born again to Nicodemus. So this isn't at all a proof text for water baptism. Uh, there's no water at all, Rodney, in John chapter 3. Here is a question from Elliot. Uh, do you think street preaching is an effective method of sharing? Um, Elliot, I'm really conflicted about this because when I hear the word street preaching, I think most of us envision somebody standing on a, a, a wall or something and shouting at the top of his lungs uh, to people. And, and we simply, I will not permit that here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We have a pretty a big and growing street witnessing team, so uh, we obviously send people out to the streets and we share Jesus. 
But we don't do it yelling at people. We don't do it waving a Bible at them or telling them, repent. We, we don't do it. What we do is we one-on-one, we talk with people about Jesus. So I guess what I would say is traditional street preaching, preaching uh, I, I, I disagree so strongly. I, I believe that it's a misrepresentation of who God is. Um, I'll give you a, a good example, Elliot. Many years ago, we had a guy in the church, and, and we were a new church, and so um, I didn't know people well yet. And he, he said, well, I'm gifted to street preach. So I, I just said, well, you're going to take three or four guys out to the street with you? I'm going to go. Let's see what you're doing. And he got up on this bench, and he started yelling at the top of his lungs at people. And in, in one case, there was a bunch of kids that were with their parents, but the parents were lagging maybe 10, 15 feet behind them. And they came across to in front of the bench and said, let's go see what that guy is doing. And um, um, the parents listened to him for just a moment, and they grabbed their kids. They walked right by me, and um, um, one of the moms said, kids, come on, we got to go. Those are Jehovah's Witnesses, and we don't want to hear them. And I thought, what a misrepresentation of Christ. And it was at that moment I forbade any kind of preaching in that order. It's simply not a, a, a right representation of Jesus Christ. So, Elliot, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, and there are a lot of people who disagree with me. But, oh well, I'm the pastor of only one church. So, I, I don't think it's effective to answer your question. Andrew says, is it okay for Christians to enjoy entertainment and hobbies or should we be 100% focused on ministry? You know, Andrew, that you have to ask this question is difficult for me because I think as Christians, we so often misrepresent um, the Lord. You know, he just wants us to be 100% focused on him. We should be 100% focused on him. But, you know, he gives us time for fun. Yeah, entertainment's fine. Hobbies are fine. Uh, hanging out with families is fine. Um, just when you do it, when you're being entertained, take Jesus with you. When you're participating in a hobby, whatever it is, take Jesus with you. We're getting ready to go on vacation. Not getting ready to go, but we go in June every year, last, last part of June. And uh, Pastor Lane uh, came to me just this past week and he said, i got a proposition for you. Uh, when we go to San Diego, we're going to go to a Padre game in the daytime. We went to a Padres game last year in the nighttime. And I said, okay. This, there's nothing wrong with that. But see, we take Jesus there and have fun. Everything you do with Jesus is better than anything you'll do without him. And I just think, you know, this idea that we can't have fun uh, has been sort of beaten into us by um, by legalists and people that just don't seem to have any joy in their walk with the Lord at all. So hope that answers your question. Let's go to Caesar on line one from San Antonio. Caesar, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I'm a new listener, so uh, I just wanted to get that out there. Uh-huh. Thank okay, you. But uh, my question was: Is it uh, is it biblical to tell Christians today to tithe? Um, I only ask that because I and, and I, I think you should give to your church willingly. Um, but to, to yes. say ten percent and to say tithing, I just feel it's unbiblical because. Um, you know, Yahweh would ask the Israelites to tithe and to give offerings to firstborn males uh, or firstborn livestock. And I feel like churches take tithing literally and take the offerings figuratively. And uh, I just want to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I, I agree completely with you. Um, there, There is no warrant whatsoever for tithing. Um, uh, Jesus, uh, Colossians says he canceled the old code that was against us when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And effectively what he was doing was canceling the old covenant. And, um, you know, if Paul or James or Peter or any of the others in their epistles wrote to us that we needed to tithe, well, then it would be something different. Their writings are, are, are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they didn't. And Paul addresses this specifically in his letters to the Corinthians. He said, give with a cheerful heart. Literally, it's with a hilarious heart. And our response to grace ought to be infinitely greater 
than than the tenth that uh, that Jews were required by law to give. I think, Caesar, there's two reasons that we stress tithing. Uh, I think we're afraid as pastors that people won't give if we don't make them give. Now, here at our church, we've never asked for a dime. We don't let our needs be known. We don't even pass an offering. And, and um, you know, we, we, we let people know when it comes to giving that, you know, the Lord owns all of everything that we have. You know, the, 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 in the Old Testament, we would say, okay, I got a dollar. Here's 10 cents for you, Lord, and 90 cents for me. Can you imagine Jesus and him going, wow, I really needed that 10 cents. Um, but, but we're to give without compulsion. We're to give without being asked. And we're to do it because we're grateful for what he's done. And Paul in Romans chapter 12 says that we should give everything. Surrender your bodies. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And and, and when it comes to giving, Caesar, it's just your time, your talent, your treasure. Everything that we have, everything that we ever will have belongs to the Lord. So what we do is say, Jesus, look at all this stuff you blessed me with. What do you want me to do with your stuff? And he'll let you know. And then you give. And I do believe we ought to be giving more than the 10% that was required by a law which condemns. And uh, Jesus lets you keep most of your stuff. He will bless you. You can't help but to, to, to be blessed by God when you're obedient. But you do it because you want to, not because you're told you have to. So in short, Caesar, your position is exactly the same as mine. Hey, Communion Sunday this weekend. Um, go to church, be an oper- uh, find an opportunity to serve the Lord. Tonight, the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19 at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. Hey, I'll be back on Monday, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.